Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as an executive who understands that healthcare is an expensive business and in my spare time, I want to know how DocDoc is trying to transform the healthcare and insurance space together. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today, I have Ko Sir co-founder and CEO of DocDoc. Welcome Ko, and it's great to have you here for the first time on our podcast. Of course, the surprise is that we have actually known each other for a very long time and have worked together on a conference between MIT and Cambridge together many years back. Hey Bernie, thank you for having me on your show. And just because you've known me a long time, no softballs, please. (laughs) (laughs) Agree, agree. And I think it's pretty interesting because I both know you and your wife Grace for a pretty long yeah. time and I know that in the past few years you have been really spending time building DocDoc so I actually also take some time to wait for you to rise and then have this conversation. But before we continue, I want my audience to get to know you better. How do you start a career? So they say men plan and God laughs. And the older I get, the more I realize how true that statement really is. I graduated from the University of Hawaii. I was a very solid economics student there. After I graduated, I was in the process of trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And my professor calls me and he was a a Japanese Golden Gloves champion boxer. In fact, the first Japanese-American Golden Glove boxing champion in the history of the Golden Gloves. And he was also a famous economist. And he calls me and he says, Cole, I'm very disappointed in you. You must get a job now. And you have to come down to the governor's office. I have a job for you. You start tomorrow. And that was my first job. I ended up working as a special advisor to Governor Cayetano in the state of Hawaii. I had no plan of that, but that just kind of happened. And then I spent two years with him. During that time, I also started a company called Pluto Networks and did some business development there for a couple of years and then went off to graduate school. The dot-com bubble collapsed and made sense to kind of hide in school. And I went to MIT and Harvard for uh, three years, getting a dual master's degree. That's where we met when you were at Cambridge at the time. I got an MBA at MIT and then I went to the Kennedy School of Government and got a Masters of Public Administration. While I was there, I spent a lot of time talking about Asia. You know, a little known fact, when I was 18, I moved to Thailand for a couple years and was a professional Muay Thai boxer. Well before it was trendy to study Muay Thai or MMA, I just was something that my, my father got me into when I was young. And so Asia was in my blood, if you will. So after I graduated from school, I came out and took a job at Tomasic Holdings. And I spent seven years there as part of their direct investment team in the telco media technology space, focused on mainly venture-type deals in the kind of Series B, Series C space in China and Japan and the United States. Southeast Asia at that point really wasn't hadn't taken off. But yeah, that's that's a bit about my career. And then subsequently from Tomasic, you branched out and then came into founding Delta together with your wife. I think one thing before we get into the main subject of the day, I wanted to ask you, in your career journey, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience? <laughs> That's kind of a good point, Bernie. I forgot about what I'm doing today. <laughs> <laughs> so, I left Tomasic about six years ago, my wife and I did, to found DocDoc. Uh, we're a husband, a husband and wife team, and, and I guess life lessons. One of the best commencement speeches I've ever seen was the one Steve Jobs did at Stanford. And I think he's really right when he says that you can never connect your, you can never really plan the future, and, and you can never connect the dots looking forward. It's only looking back. And I, you know, if I look at how Doc Doc was formed, and I look at you know doing it with my wife, and and all the trials and tribulations of a husband and wife team, just how hard it is to start a company. I would have told you with a hundred percent certainty when I was sitting at Tomasic that I am not going to go off and start my own company. It's just too hard. And then life just had other plans. Life made a decision to give us a unique insight, and my wife and I felt like we had to do this. 
One of the biggest lessons I've learned in life is that you can't, you need to be very careful about what you read in the media and how that affects your psyche. There's a lot of these statements that entrepreneurs share that have deep meaning if you think about them. And this is one of my favorites. You know, men plan and God laughs. Or another one that I really like is, he was an overnight success 20 years in the making, right? So the media like makes everything out to be, oh, and then bang, look, wow. And it was so lucky. And the reality is, is that it's never, it's almost never just luck. You know, you work really hard in the dark for a long time and you grind and you build and you grind and you build and you have more courage than fear. And, and that's what allows you to build something. And then the world recognizes. But the world is always way behind the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur starts in advance. And so I, I think thoughts that I'm always sharing with the audience or my people I'm speaking with at, at events or in, in the team, men plan and God laughs. Another one that Muhammad Ali, he didn't actually come up with this quote, but he always says it, is the realer you get, the more unreal the world becomes. The idea behind that is, is the more you own reality, the more you solve real problems, you do real things that actually make you stronger the more the world begins to exalt you and say how unreal you become, like Muhammad Ali. And this other one about, you know, 20 year, an overnight success 20 years in the making. This is my biggest career lesson, my biggest career idea, is, is it's not going to make sense in the moment. But every day you need to spend your time in a worthy cause, working really hard to solve a real problem, and being the best you can be, and then let the cards fall where they may. So we're going to come to the main subject of the day which is about the company Dog Dog, which you and your wife co-founded together with, you with a few others. It's actually better to say my wife co-founded it. My always say Grace first. Grace okay. and Cole. Okay. <laughs> the way I'm going to start the conversation is, can you first describe the backstory in how the company was being founded, Dog Dog, and what is the current vision and mission of Dog Dog? Sure. So first, what we do, just real quick. So Dog Dog is a category-defining company in patient intelligence. We are a patient's best friend in the industry. We're doctors powered with the most sophisticated predictive analytics engine ever built in healthcare that matches patients and doctors. That's what we do. That's our basic service. Now, the backstory, why did we build this? So there I was, I just flown in from London on a red eye, and my wife says to me, Cole, you need to take our 100-day daughter in for her 100-day checkup. So I grab her, I take her into the hospital, take her into the pediatrician, and the pediatrician says, Gets very, and we thought she was totally healthy at the time. The pediatrician looks at her and says, Cole, she's jaundice. And he gets this very stern look on his face. And, and I'm like, wow, okay. And then the next thing you know, he says, you, you need to go over and get an ultrasound done right now at the hospital. So I walk over to the hospital with Rand, still not realizing the, the, the enormity of what's about to happen. And the nurse starts doing the ultrasound and she starts crying while she's doing it. Now at this point, I'm like, wow, something very serious is going on here. 15 minutes later, I'm in a tiny room with no windows, surrounded by surgeons. I'm calling my wife and I'm told my daughter's liver's failing or our daughter's liver's failing. It's our only daughter. And I'm told that we need to do this massive operation tomorrow morning and that operation will basically almost guaranteed fail, and then we're gonna to have to do a liver transplant. I can't tell you how difficult that news was to hear as a first-time parent, as any parent. To add insult to injury, I started asking the medical team, can you help me understand some basic things? How many times have you done this procedure? To which the answer was, I'm the head of the department, I'm good at my job. And I asked, what is this gonna cost? And they said, well, do you have insurance? And I said, yes. And they asked about the policy, and they said, don't worry about it. It's going to be very expensive. And then I said, well, what are the long-term consequences of this? And I'm told, don't worry about it. You don't have a choice. We have to do it now. 
and there's no, if we don't do it, she'll die. So basically zero empowerment. Now, that's a, this is a very common story. This happens to a lot of people, and I've learned over the years this happens pretty much every room I ever walk into to investors or audiences or just everyone's had a story similar to this. But here's the part they didn't have. So my wife, being the far smarter of the two of us, called uh, a doctor that was a good friend of ours who we had just done some medical missions with in Vietnam. And he came running over. He, he just so happened to be that he was the leading pediatric cardiac surgeon in Singapore. And he comes running over and he puts his arms around us and walks us out of the room and the door shuts. And the moment it shuts, he says, don't let anybody in that room touch your daughter. They're not qualified to do stuff like this. I mean, yeah, they're technically qualified, but this is unique. We got to do a global search and find out really who the best teams in the world are to be doing this, because this doesn't happen very often. And he's like, we have time. We need to get this done in the next week or a couple weeks. But it's not an issue of hours. It's an issue of weeks. And it was at that moment that I realized, it was one of the most horrifying feelings of my entire life. It was at that moment that I realized that I was being sold medical care by people I was meant to trust in an information vacuum. So this is a long story, and I'll try to make it shorter. But... Uh, the doctor and I did a massive global search and the highest volume teams in the world were all in Japan. They actually operated out of Kobe. We found the founder of the live liver transplant and his team and we went and did our procedure there. It did fail. We then ended up flying them to Singapore and doing a live liver transplant here. I was the donor. After that, as I was sitting in the ICU, my wife and I looked at each other and I said, we know what we need to do with DocDoc. We need to create the doctor that helped us. We need to create a product that mimics that ability to help the average patient in the world. And, and that, that's how we started the company. And it has been a few years since then. Yeah, and been a lot of years. Real hard stuff. Yeah, and of course, Ren is now a, a very beautiful child and having a lot more things to do. Yeah, Rand, we, had a one, we were in the top 1% of outcomes. So I was the donor. I'm fine. Rand is a precocious six-year-old girl. We're going to a, you know international school here. You'd have no idea. We dodged a bullet. Like, we really dodged a bullet. And it was at that moment, if we hadn't picked that team, I'm very confident that we would have not had the success that we did. What you want to do with DocDoc is basically extend that particular ex experience that you're able to enable or empower others to actually come to your platform. So I'm going to ask you, what is a customer journey for a consumer like yourself yeah. coming into DocDoc? And then my follow-up question to that would be, what happens to a business customer, for example, such as the insurance company? What is their customer journey coming into DocDoc? Well, they're both the same. So we started DocDoc trying to recreate this experience. And this experience has two parts to it. And it's taken us a long time of a lot of patient-centric innovation to actually figure out this journey and what this journey really is. But it's two parts. It's a relationship with a medically trained professional that you can ask questions to. That personal journey, the emotional part of that is massive. The second part is, is that medical professional needs to be armed with a massive amount of medically relevant data that's put into intermediate markers that they can use to guide you. So that's really, it's two parts. So the way the journey works is you would click on a button inside your insurance company's application that says find a doctor and you would have a, what we call a doctor discovery consultation. It's a 10 to 15 minute call with a doctor whose only job is to sit and have a conversation with you and understand what's going on so that they can 
plug that data into our predictive analytics engine, Hope, which is the heuristic for outcome, price, and experience. That's our AI engine. And then that AI engine will then search through 23,000 doctors and recommend three doctors to you that we think are the most relevant for your unique situation as a patient. And we could spend a lot of time talking about how we built out our provider analytics engine, but just from a customer journey point of view, we then basically take that report that's generated and we provide it to you, to the patient. The patient then reads the report and then a follow-up conversation happens. And about 90% of the time, the patient picks one of the doctors we recommend and goes and sees them. Now, after that first visit, that doctor calls that patient again. Hey, how'd it go? What did we learn? Are we on the right track? Oh, the diagnosis is very different than we expected. Let's run another report. Let's see if you're still seeing the right team. But the point is, you're never lost in the system again. It's man plus or human plus machine, because that's what you really want. How do we recreate the experience that that doctor did to transform my family's lives. That's what DocDoc is fundamentally. What differentiates DocDoc with other companies in the health tech space then? (laughs) All of it? (laughs) (laughs) But seriously. Okay, so base layer. We've built a knowledge model at a condition and procedure level of granularity that connects conditions, procedures, and specialties based on international code sets for over 90% of medicine. That took 23 doctors three and a half years of full-time work. That's just the knowledge model. The layer on top of that is we've gone to 23,000 doctors door-to-door to collect over 500 data points per doctor in our proprietary database and signed an individual contract with all of them. On top of that, we then have built HOPE, the heuristic for outcome, price, and experience, which is the series of algorithms that that actually filter that data at a condition and procedure level of granularity that allow patients to actually make informed decisions. And then on top of that, we've trained a call center of physicians to use that system and to be really good on the phone with patients to explain things in a, in, in a way that are actually helps that person understand what's going on. So it's all of that. See, a dirty little secret in healthcare is unfortunately, oftentimes patients don't matter. And it, nobody intends it for it to be that way, but it ends up being that way because they don't have a large enough advocacy group. So the insurance companies, they have huge advocacy groups because they're big. Right? Hospital chains, huge advocacy groups. Physicians, huge advocacy groups. Pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies. These are all big groups with big castles. And the patients are all running around in between these castles lost in the system. DocDoc is the advocacy group. We collect data nobody else has. We structure it in a way that allows medically relevant markers to come up. And then on top of that, we marry that with a person whose only job is to help you not get lost in the system. No one's ever done this before. We're defining the whole category. I think it's very interesting because healthcare is more complex than most other traditional industries when it comes to both discovery and curation. Because the type of data you're dealing with, you need to be secure, you need to be compliant with the local health authorities then. I understand that you have recently received a lot of interest from the insurance industry. What are the main reasons that insurance companies may be interested in partnering? Yeah, so, okay, two things. So one, the insurance industry really is in a period where they need to rapidly evolve their product. And the product that they're really selling is a solution. When I'm sick, I need a solution provider to help pay for my sicknesses, guide me in my journey, and to anything else that I can do around that solution. But it's around creating data. So the insurance industry is evolving into what are data-centric services that I can marry with my insurance that will actually help better solve the the problem that they're facing. 
So Doctor Discovery now is a perfect complement in life insurance and health insurance in particular and workers' comp insurance and a whole litany of, of, of the reasons you buy insurance. That's the first piece. Now, the second piece of this is insurance companies also, they make more money the less they pay out. And if you think about currently how healthcare is consumed, it's consumed in one of the most inefficient ways imaginable. I walk into the most branded hospital possible as a patient because I don't care what it costs because I'm covered, and then I just say, help, help. Well, that hospital system is designed now to max not only take care of me, but to maximize the size of that bill because they're a profit-seeking entity. So the insurance companies are saying, you mean, DocDoc, you can radically transform the customer experience in a way that's super positive, and at the same time, what we're paying you, the cost of light, is a lot cheaper than the price of darkness? Ah, this is a win-win. So it's winner, winner on both sides, better customer experience, and definitely a massively high ROI. So you do the discovery and curation, and where does the transaction comes in? in ah, that's the third-party administrator piece. And so all the doctors in our network have agreed to be part of our cashless solution. So we, when we partner with an insurance company, the doctors now will go, will work, work directly with the insurance company to actually make money or to actually complete the transaction. Because this is another part about solution selling is, is I, I want to make sure that when I'm, as a patient, I want to make sure that as I'm selling, I don't have to go out of pocket for money that I don't have. I don't want to be filling out a bunch of paperwork I don't understand. It's just better if all that's done behind the scenes. And so that's what DocDoc does. So it's similar to something like an Airbnb where if you're a customer and you book a particular accommodation to live, they actually done the escrow for both the person? Yes. Yeah, it isn't quite that complex because the insurance industry has these third-party administrators that are there and there's a variety of functions. But ultimately, yes. I mean, ultimately, the best way to think about DocDoc is patient intelligence in this category we're defining has three key aspects. Discovery, curation, and transaction. So discovery, that's 23,000 doctors, that's data that nobody else has, that's all those contracts, that's all those people that have agreed to be on a cashless solution, okay? Curation, that's hope, the heuristic for outcome, price, and experience. Now the transaction piece is that the patient doesn't have to worry about it, it's connected. Now over time, those connections will get better. And over time, doc, doc, that will, that will largely become automated. But right now, that's a highly manual transaction process. And that, that has to deal with another little known dirty secret about the insurance industry and that's that they don't really have a lot of data so their current business processing of these insurance policies is done through third-party administrators which largely create as much data debt at the third-party administrator level so you know the insurance companies actually don't get most of the data that they should be collecting flowing back to them well i know grace she's the one yeah. who started dog dog and then after you join as the co-founder who are the other key people within your team that's helping you to execute this vision? Yeah, it's an interesting... When you're solving something that's really close to home, it's amazing how you kind of circle the wagons with people that you really trust. One of my best friends in business school is a guy named Dr. Dan Riskin. And uh, you, you knew Dan from the, 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 our Cambridge MIT affiliation. Dan is a critical care doctor. He's a trauma surgeon. He got his MBA at MIT. And uh, before that, he was a computer scientist. So Dan, uh, and, and now he literally is one of the, the foremost thinkers in the world in the field of clinical informatics. And Dan's been very, very successful as an entrepreneur. And so Dan, when we really decided that we needed to build out this platform around discovery and, and, and curation and transaction, Dan was pretty much one of the best guys in the world to help us build out the curation piece. 
and he's the principal architect of Hope, and he's been great. Now, uh, another gentleman that I brought on was actually one of my best friends in high school. His name is Chad Parsons. And after high school, Chad dropped out of college, and I think he started seven companies now. And he's just a very, very savvy entrepreneur that has been very successful in a variety of different fields. And we brought Chad in to run finance and HR. You know, it's a, a little-known fact, and boy, this made a huge difference in our company. Having a Jedi in the role of HR head is so important. My job is so much easier as CEO that I can call somebody who's truly a world-class player and say, hey, I need three new people for this field. I need three more over here or two more over there. And know that I'm going to get a bunch of really high-quality candidates that I, can, that I know have been really well vetted. Man, that makes my job so much easier. So that's Chad. And then we have, you know, Dr. Ari Wudododo. So Ari runs uh, all the doctors in our call center. And previous to uh, Doc Doc, Ari spent 18 and a half years at International SOS running the medical evacuation call center of doctors for the largest medical evacuation call center system in the world. I think he had 350 doctors directly under him. So Ari is the guy you want running a doctor-based call center. If, if that's going to be an important part of your operation. But the team now, I mean, it's, it, it, the team's deep. We're 84 people, and we operate in eight countries, and we just have a, a great group of people. We've got senior executives from John Hopkins on the team. We have just a really, really solid group of people. So what's the geographical business footprint for the company now? Yeah, so we're in Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Hong Kong, Korea, Philippines, and India. And I think recently you had something happened in Hong Kong, right? Well, we signed a deal with, and I'm very excited about this. So insurance tech's becoming a big deal, and it's just starting. The wave of disruption that's happening in insurance is far larger than even the media fully realizes now, but it's becoming, it's, it's going to get, become a very, very big deal. You know, recognizing that the Hong Kong government, under their Cyberport Global Macro Fund, has invested in DocDoc. They gave us some office space in Cyberport. They were, the, were the, the largest investment they've ever made in a company and were the, large, the first investment they've ever made in a foreign company. And they've done that because they want to attract us to Hong Kong because they want Hong Kong to be the capital of Asia for insurance tech. You know, all these major global insurers, they have their regional headquarters in Hong Kong. Insurance tech, as it becomes a big thing, they want the leading insurance tech companies to be based there. Mm. I also understand that you have very brilliant investors behind DocDoc. Can you talk about them? <laughs> brilliant you're only a brilliant investor after you sell something for a huge amount of money. So we do have some really good people around the table, though, and I'm really thankful for that. So uh, we have a gentleman by the name and, and a syndicate he put together that led our angel round by the name of Kobun Hui. He's a prolific angel in the region. He's been the chairman of a whole bunch of really important companies like Singapore Airlines and Singtel and the Development Bank of Singapore, Far East Group. He was on the board of Tomasic when I was there. But he, you know, he's just been amazing and uh, just been an amazing investor. And both Kit Wan and Chow Boon, two of his other partners, are also uh, significant investors in Doc Doc, and they've been amazing. Uh, and they led a syndicate of individuals that kind of did our angel. We have a Hung Leung Financial Group, which is the, the lead of our Series A. He was actually the chairman there, a gentleman by the name of Kwek Ling Chan, which is one of the most successful business family enterprises in Malaysia. And they've also been super helpful to us in a whole variety of ways. And then, you know, this most recently, we brought in a group of really world-class healthcare professionals and consumer product professionals. So uh, individuals like uh, Bob McDonald, the former global chairman and CEO of Procter & Gamble, 
then he went off after he left that role, and he was the secretary of the Veterans Administration. So he stepped in and, and wrote a significant personal investment. You have Bill Hawkins, the former global chairman and CEO of uh, um, Medtronic Corporation, that you know invested in Doc Doc. You have uh, a guy by the name of John Tan, who was the founder of Asia Capital Reinsurance, the largest reinsurance company uh, ever founded and grown in Asia. Um, Adamus Asset Management, which is a, a very well-known special situations fund. Uh, there's just a bunch of good people around the table. I, I feel we're at that stage now where it's real smart money that's investing, people that really understand healthcare, people that really understand insurance, and they can see what we're building and the relevance of it and the, and the kind of global applicability. It's, this is, you asked me earlier about career lessons. And I mentioned earlier about you know, Muhammad Ali and the, the more real you become, the more unreal the world becomes. And, and I, I think this is very relevant to this exact point because I, I genuinely think Doc Docs, we're, not, we're creating a category that's going to change the world of healthcare. And we're doing it in Southeast Asia. And that was completely and utterly not obvious at the time we started the company. And the reason Southeast Asia is going to turn out to be the spot in the world to launch this kind of business is because... Singapore's big enough to have big insurance businesses, but it's small enough to not have massive special interest that prevents innovation. Malaysia is big enough to have big insurance company businesses, but small enough to not have crazy special interests that are preventing healthcare innovation. And this is the same all the way up Asia. And as we, just like a prairie fire, you know, we look, we, as this thing really starts re- growing in Malaysia and Singapore and Hong Kong and j- just these three markets in Thailand, all of a sudden we have the critical mass that we can begin to take on markets like the United States. We have the girth. We have the relationships with the global insurers. We have demonstrated track records. And that's what it takes to really build a global phenomenon. It's like a prairie fire. It starts with one match. And Southeast Asia was the place, and when Doc Doc was founded, was the time to start that match. So I'm pretty curious to know what would be the metrics if Doc Doc is successful in a few years' time. Oh, it, it it'll be the global category-defining company for patient intelligence. Hope will be the dominant platform for empowering patients through all the major global insurers. So here's the thing, right? You get one, and then you get one's not a pattern. Then you have two. Now you have two. There's massive market leverage for the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. So I don't think we get one. I think we're I think we're going to have the majority of the global insurance industry as clients, and I think they're all going to be rolling out because it represents the first mover is a fundamental competitive advantage, and then the second mover has to have it to stay competitive. And so I think we'll be a global standard for patient intelligence and patient information and provider analytics. Right? In the same way that Airbnb is the global platform for vacation rentals, DocDoc will be the global platform for medical patient empowerment, what we call patient intelligence. I think that's a very interesting road to go. But before we get to the closing, I want to ask you a few things because I, I always enjoy talking to you and all the insights that I usually get in understanding something better. Where do you see the major trends in the digital healthcare space? All right, so this is a good one. Almost the vast majority of the digital health companies, particularly in Southeast Asia, but actually globally, they won't be around in in five or six years. I wish the mortality will be higher in digital health than it is even in consumer internet. And the reason is is because it's so hard to actually build the underlying core architecture that you need 
to really solve healthcare problems, that our most digital health companies end up becoming doctor directories, and largely a phone book online, not a lot of value there, maybe some limited discovery. They become telemedicine companies, right? Very limited use cases with a lot of value, or they end up being just call centers full of doctors that can provide, provide advice, but it's not systematized, it's not scalable, it's not databased. They end up all operating on the periphery, and they don't have deep barriers to entry. And so as they try to go into B2B, which is where most of the patients are, it's, it's, it's a B2B to C model. I mean, patients are fundamentally driven by governments, large employers, insurers. And all of these entities are going to chew you up unless you add real value to the system and you have deep barriers to entry. If you don't have those things, you're going to get chewed up. And so unfortunately, most of the digital health companies, not just in Southeast Asia, but globally, are going to ultimately get chewed up and because they didn't start at the heart of the problem and build out from there. So where do you see then the key innovation drivers given that healthcare is such a highly regulated space? So... I think it's going to be around insurance. So what DocDoc's doing in patient intelligence is going to be a really big deal. Uh, it'll define a category. There'll be other companies in that category. People are going to reinvent health insurance whole cloth. So there'll be people that come out and, and start a brand new health insurance company. And it's all based on analytics. And it's all based on wearables. And there's no data debt in it because from the day one, the entire workflow was built in a way that all the data was collected with machine in machine-readable ways, tied to ontologies. Yeah, in the U.S., Oscar is moving in that direction. There's a company called Lemonade that's moving in that direction. There's a huge amount of room for those kind of companies to grow. Uh, I think they'll be very successful. There's also a lot of room around workers' compensation and how do you get employees back up after injuries faster. Now, the areas that are really tough, but I do believe innovation will happen, is around health and wellness. You know, How do I take somebody who's a five-pack-a-day smoker and get them to quit smoking. Uh, how do I take someone who's morbidly obese and that's just about, you know, they're already pre-diabetic and they're going to be a huge drain in the system, how do I help them adjust their lifestyle? There's a huge potential for that. The ROI there should be fairly obvious. The problem is, is influencing that person with a digital product is massively challenging and so far it's not working. But I do believe there'll be innovation there. In summary, I think that you have innovation in the core health product, innovation around provider analytics, and innovation around influencing behavior. These are going to be the major things. Telemedicine will kind of fall over the top of all of them, but it's window dressing. It's a feature and not a company. Doctor directories, very limited value, kind of like a phone book. You know, you don't just need to see the number of oncologists in your community and you know which ones are relevant for you. So I think the curation piece will be critical. But that, that's how I see it evolving. I know this probably one of the questions that I have probably for closing. What is it like building a digital health company in Asia Pacific? So I think it's the same way. If you're building a big company with a big vision and you're defining your own category, I think it's always the same. I think that climbing a logarithmic curve feels awful for a very long time because you're just sitting there running what feels like parallel to the x-axis. And everyone's like, why are you doing this? You have this opportunity cost and you have all these other things and you should be off. You shouldn't be doing this. This doesn't make sense. And then all of a sudden it just blows up and takes off. So I'm glad that DocDoc has seen its inflection point. We, we can now see that, that second derivative really changing. And I'm glad we've gotten this far. But I think not enough is written and not enough is talked about the dark days. 
the 20 years, they, everyone always talks about the overnight success. They don't talk about the 20 years that made it possible. And, and I think that that plays on your psyche a lot. And that's augmented with social media, and that's augmented with all these annoying entrepreneurs that are always running around telling you how their life is so groovy and it all works out. It's not that way. Man, it's hard to start a successful business. It's really difficult to build a high-quality team, and every day is a fight, and that's why it's so important you have a real reason to be doing it. So I, I'm certain Doc Doc would have failed if we didn't have the damn near spiritual uh, zealousness to make it successful. Yeah, and I think I probably will get back, get you back to talk about that at some point in time. And but before that, I was also make sure that I will have to interview your wife Grace Park. <laughs> that would be a much better interview. <laughs> Well, she's one of probably the most well-known operators in the healthcare space before she went into Dog Dog Review. So, my audience, you're going to reach out on that. So, in closing, I know you read a lot, just as I do. I want you to give some recommendations. Can you give a book recommendation, movie, podcast, or anything that has made an impact to your work and personal life? So, I like to study just more for fun than anything else. I like to, uh, every year, pick a topic and spend the year studying it. So this year I'm studying the samurai. Just the way their philosophy, their thought processes, their daily practice. And there's a gentleman there, a Zen poet, who's a Zen monk by the name of Tekawan. And he wrote a book called The Unfettered Mind, which I think is really good. I also read, if you want kind of, you really want to understand a lot of samurai culture, I read another book I thought was really interesting recently uh, called Musashi. And it's a historical fiction about Masashi Metamoto. I mean, it's a huge book, but it was really good. But I think Tekawan, Unfettered Mind, is a great one. It's a short book. And it's all the essays that he wrote to Masashi Metamoto about Zen and the parallels between Zen thought and sword fighting. And I think I probably should also recommend Musashi's The Book of Five Rings as a complimentary book. Yeah, that's a good book. I've read that one, but it's almost a bit cliche. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to understand... This is why I like Tekawan's better. Um, the Book of Five Rings is good, but if you read Unfettered Mind first, and then you ca then then the Book of Five Rings makes more sense. Yes, I got that from you recently. You're right about that. Yeah. So my last question: How did my audience find you? Facebook or yeah, LinkedIn. I'm at Cole Dot so it's a C O L E S I R U C E K. You can find me on LinkedIn, or you can find me at uh, Cole Surcheck on Facebook. Yeah, or you can go to docdoc.com and just click contact us and somebody will send me an email saying someone's trying to reach you. And you can Google me at Bernard Leung and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify and Himalaya. Please tweet to me your comments on the podcast and of course give us a five star on Apple Podcasts and a star on every other platforms. And of course, most importantly, uh, this podcast is co-produced by... Carol In and myself and we're going to have some major announcements coming with regards to the live show as I've already gotten venues for both uh, Singapore and then followed by Hong Kong so once again Cole many thanks for coming on the show hey thanks Bernie take care